integrity. And I think every one of us in some way, shape, or form, even, even if it's uh, feeling entitled to a bagel when you come to church on Sunday morning, some way, shape, or form, entitlement enters into our lives. And, uh, and when we embrace entitlement, we rob integrity. And Jesus would rather we walk in integrity. So we're going to look at that today, and hopefully you're blessed by that. Uh, some of you may be struggling um, in your job. Maybe it doesn't fulfill your heart to do the job you do every day. Um, and that's whether you're a homemaker, whether you're out uh, working your career, a student, maybe you own a business, and you're, you're just trying to remember, why? Why am I doing this? And you're struggling with that. I hope you're encouraged today because Jesus is going to tell us why, why you're doing what you're doing. And, um, and then uh, we're going we're gonna, to hopefully, Lord willing, um, also help comfort uh, hurts that you, re- you deal with repetitively through another brother or sister in the Lord, whether it's a spouse or just a friend. And um, these, these hurts that keep coming, um, hopefully we can, we can counsel you in some of those as well. And then, um, yeah, I think yeah, that's, that's about it. That should be plenty to keep us busy. Uh, so let's get into prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for this day. We thank you, God, for um, the summer. And like, like Curtis said, the, the cooler air is coming, and, the, and God's seasons are changing, but you never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God, so we glorify you. We come before you, your throne, in the name of Jesus, because through Jesus alone can we come to you, Father. And I praise you for sending your Son. I praise you for the victory that he won on the cross in overcoming the grave, and God, the hope that we have as a result. And so this moment right now, Lord, we praise you for, for your son, Jesus, to die for us. And Lord, we're so glad that uh, you hear us and you love us, you're patient and you're kind with us, because God, we couldn't do this without you. And so Lord, we ask, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, Lord, hearts that understand, Lord, soften our hearts where, where we've allowed them to harden. Lord, and would you encourage us where we're just kind of tired and um, we're losing sight of, God, why you would have us doing what we're doing. We pray for your encouragement today through your spirit. Jesus, we love you and we thank you and we pray in your mighty name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to go to Luke 17. While you turn to Luke 17, I'll give you some of the context of our discussion, our teaching today. And... Um, Jesus is addressing a huge, huge audience in Luke 15 and in Luke 16. And then in Luke 17, we see him turn to address his disciples. And this is pretty cool, and it's important that we see. Because the message to the big audience is one thing, and then the message to the disciples is our thing as well. Because we are his disciples. And I hope you know that this is personal between Jesus and you and Jesus and, and me. And it's pretty cool, hopefully uh, encouraging as well. But Jesus is sharing in Luke 15 and 16 a lot of parables. I'm just going to briefly summarize a little bit of that because it brings context to our teaching today. In uh, Luke 15, we see the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep. And in those two parables, Jesus tells us that once that which is lost is found, 
all of heaven rejoices. Once a sinner um, repents, what happens? All of heaven rejoices. 1998, when, when I received Christ as my Savior, there was a stirring in heaven itself and rejoicing in heaven itself. And that's a pretty powerful thought to think. Anytime a sinner repents, heaven rejoices. What, what a cool and encouraging message. Then Jesus talks about the prodigal son. And um, the prodigal, he, he takes, asks his father for his inheritance, and then he goes and lives a sinful life in, in the equivalent of Las Vegas for the day. And he eventually comes to the end of himself, gets really hungry, which helps, helps us turn to the Lord, and he says, you know, I've sinned against heaven. And he repents, and he returns to his father, and his father sees him from a long way off. And Jesus is sharing an intimate story at this point because this is about our Heavenly Father. And he's sharing it with this big audience. And some of the people in the audience don't like Jesus, but he's still sharing it. And I have a difficult time sharing something intimate and personal in front of people who don't like me. And, and Jesus, though, Jesus is doing that right now. And I want you guys to hear this. He wants you to share in front of a world that doesn't even like his son, that God loves sinners. Whether they like him or not, whether they like you or not, whether they like the message or not, be like Jesus and be faithful to share the truth that God loves sinners. And so the prodigal returns and the father sees him from a long distance off saying he's looking for his son to come home. And when he sees him, he runs to him, which in, in Christ's time, a man running brings shame upon himself. But this father doesn't care. He wants to go embrace his son. And so he hugs him and receives him. And then, after receiving his son, he's like, we're going to have a huge celebration. And so they kill the, this fatted lamb. And then what happens? We see entitlement in a real clear way in Scripture. The older brother of the prodigal hears this party going on and doesn't want to go into the party because he's obeyed his father's every command since childhood, and his father never once celebrated that. And part of me feels sorry for that guy. And uh, I want you to hear, there might be things in your life, and I know there are in mine, where I'm sitting outside the celebration because it's not for me. And that's what happened to the older brother. He felt entitled, after all these years of obedience, to be celebrated. And the sinner who repents gets celebrated. And this is a creepy, crawly, nasty thing that can happen inside of our hearts is over time, we're not seen. We, we serve the Lord. We're faithful to the Lord. And years pass by. Nothing's changed. We're never given a thank you or credit. And um, our hearts can harden. And we miss out on the whole celebration. And I think um, it's a fitting time and a fitting generation to speak to about entitlement. And so hopefully um, it speaks to your heart as well. Then in uh, 16, Luke 16, we see Jesus confront the love of money. Verse 14 of Luke 16 says, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. Um, these guys are confronted for the sin in their heart and their response is to deride him. So now Jesus is just, this is all a big setup for Luke 17. 
where 15 we see entitlement, then we see love of money, then we see people who um, get confronted of, of their sin and they deride Jesus who's, who's faithful to confront them, right? And then um, the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man goes to uh, hell, the, the, the poor man, the beggar, goes to heaven. The rich man says, send Lazarus to the earth that he may warn my brothers so that they'll repent. So in, in hell, he has this desire to see his brothers never go to hell, which, that's love, right? And um, Abraham, in, this, in Luke 16, says, hey, you know what? They have the law, they have the prophets. Even if someone rises from the dead, they're not going to repent. Really harsh words. And, but it's prophecy to these Pharisees who were deriding Christ because Christ is soon going to rise from the dead, and they're not going to repent. And that's ultimately, I mean, it's such a powerful, this whole story is so intimate and powerful. And Jesus has so much courage. It's just unbelievable. Then we pick up in Luke 17, and Jesus is no longer talking to the huge crowd. This is at the exact same time. He, he stops and he turns and addresses his disciples. That's you and I. Now he's talking to us specifically. Jesus now, after all this big setup, is ready to disciple. That's pretty cool. And I hope we're discipled today. I hope we grow in the knowledge of, of God and in our image of Jesus. So let's look at Luke 17, verse 1. Then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Okay, well, that's some pretty, pretty harsh language for Jesus to be, to be coming out with to his disciples. But isn't it awesome to have someone in your life to speak a hard truth? Where would we be if we didn't have people in our lives to speak hard truth? And Jesus speaks a hard truth to these guys. And he's talking about, in this case, what, what the Pharisees are doing is they are putting sin and stumbling block through the form of self-righteousness in front of children. And they're raising children in a path that will ultimately ensure unbelief in Christ. And in doing that, Jesus is saying, you're better off dead than to do that. Because to do that is a terrible thing. Okay, well, those are harsh, strong words. But before we jump too quickly from verse 1, he says, it is impossible for no offenses to come. And I think if you've lived on this earth long enough, perhaps even three minutes, you might discover an offense came. Even the moment you were born, back in the day, you got spanked by the doctor. Hey, welcome. Bang. Right? Like, what is this greeting? The doctor's trying to get your lungs going and make you cry and all that. But Jesus is saying it's impossible that you won't be offended. And he's preparing his disciples for the next offense that comes. And how are you going to react to it? So when that is the world's offense, now he goes into when a brother or sister in Christ offends you. Because it's impossible that you won't be offended by a brother or sister in Christ. It's impossible. Well, okay, and that's my lesson today, so okay, no, we'll, we'll keep going. 
Well, it's kind of a sad note to end on, if you were to end on that, isn't it? But Jesus has a lot of hope to bring us, and he has a way to go from offended to restored, and it's beautiful, beautiful uh, relationships, whether it's, um, your, like I said, a brother or sister in Christ, a family member, a spouse. It's impossible that at some point in time you won't be offended. Here is how you redeem that. The world has a different route. Everything we're going to talk about today, this morning, is absolutely the antithesis to the world. They, they do not see things this way. And so Jesus is addressing his disciple, and in his discipling, he's confronting some very fundamental things and teaching us how to do it. So in verse 3, he says, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. This is a, a really cool thing. What Jesus is asking us to do, and I know that this is elementary stuff in your walk. You've walked with the Lord a long time. This, I pray, is a refresher to you. I doubt it's new. It's pretty elementary, but I think we need to keep remembering it, is that um, we are to rebuke sin and then forgive the repentant. Rebuke sin and then forgive. And this isn't saying that if someone doesn't ask forgiveness, that we have the right to not forgive. That's not what he's referring to. In fact, the Bible is emphatic that we have to be forgiven, to forgive others as we have been forgiven. What this is saying is do to others what God does for you every single day and be faithful to forgive. Now, what else does God do in us every single day is that he rebukes us. He rebukes us, and he's faithful to rebuke us. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us today, you know what, if somebody sins against you, you've got to confront that sin. The word, the word rebuke is a very strong word. And, and it's to say, don't make light of it. Because sin is sin, and sin is bad, and sin breeds death, right? And so the word rebuke is a fitting word. But when we confront someone's sin, we are sinners going to confront someone else's sin that we should be humble, we should be humble about it. It's not easy to, to confront someone's sin if you're honest with yourself because you're a sinner. And you might think, well, who am I to confront their sin? And if it's a brother or sister, they could come back at you with things that you've done. And then all of a sudden you've got this big argument going because if they've known you long enough, they have some ammunition to throw back at you, don't they? And so... How do we do this? We'll talk about that. How do we confront someone? And why do we have the right to when we're sinners ourselves? Kind of feels like hypocrisy sometimes. And so you might think, well, I'm going to ask a pastor to do it. Guess what? Pastors are sinners. No less than you are. Just I mean, David, King David, surely in sin I was conceived, he said. So all the way from that moment of conception, sin. And it's because of our sin nature. So God is faithful to us to confront our sin, and isn't it great that he does it privately, right? And, and um, 
because we're, we've sinned against him. So he says, you've got to stop doing that. And then by his grace and love, we respond with, Father, against you I have sinned and I repent. And we turn and we receive that forgiveness. The Bible says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Now, the Bible says anyone who confesses their sin to God, he is faithful and just to forgive their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. It's so cool. If you were to look at confronting someone else's sin and rebuking someone else's sin with the perspective of cleansing them from unrighteousness, healing, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. That's a powerful word, healing. And we know bitterness has a physical effect on us, doesn't it? It can really affect us physically, and we can, we can even get sick as a result of unconfessed sin and um, unconfronted sin. But he says, take heed to yourselves. This is about taking ownership of what God has put in front of you personally. I don't need to take ownership of what God has put in front of someone else, my family members or whoever. I've got to take heed to myself. And, and Jesus is asking each of us, take heed to yourself, and if your brother sins against you, have courage and rebuke that sin. Speak the truth in love. So Matthew 25 tells us how to do that. This is a, the parallel scriptures are Matthew 18 and Matthew 25, where we're told, if you're sinned against, go and confront that person alone and talk to them. See, you've, that what you did hurt. What you did, it hurt me, and I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that I've hurt you. We all hurt one another, but you've got to stop doing this. That's faithfulness to a friend. That's love, and it's not easy. Tough love, we call it, right? And then um, if they don't listen, what do we do then? We, we take two or three of us. We've got to go together and confront this sin. If they don't listen to that, the next step to come our way is going to be go to the church. And now the church has to confront this person's sin. And if they still don't listen, then Jesus said, treat them like a tax collector or a heathen, which means they are not allowed to come to church anymore. Now, all of that is love. All of it is love. And all of it is tough. None of that is easy. None of it. None of it is easy. But we got to do it because that's what love does. And so, as a result of being no longer allowed to go to church, finally, through the prayer of everyone at the church, usually people say, okay. I give up. And they come back. And then when they come back, we do what heaven does when a sinner repents. We celebrate and we welcome them back and we hug them and embrace them. That's the body of Christ. That's how it's supposed to work. And that is hard. It takes courage and it takes humility because we all sin. Jesus never had to come and confront us humbly. Because he was perfect. <laughs> but he's still meek and lowly, he said. He called, he called himself meek and lowly. 
And if he, perfect Jesus, can be meek and lowly, so can we. Amen? Okay, so that is the relationship between brother and sister and the church as a whole, as all of us. And so then he says, And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And that, that uh, makes things very frustrating. It's tough. It's tough to deal with somebody who's repetitively sinning against you. And this, and this, this, this person, eventually that type of person develops a reputation throughout the whole church. And, and then the whole church has to continually forgive this person. And I have to continually forgive this person. And that is very, very difficult to do, especially a loved one, a family member, because you're living with them. It's so hard to do that, isn't it? It's tiring. It wears, it wears down at your soul. So, but if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes to you saying, I repent, we're supposed to forgive him. Verse 5, the apostles say to the Lord, now this is the apostles, this is the 12. This is not the larger general disciple audience. There were more than 12 people following Jesus while he walked the earth. Now it's the 12 saying, Lord, this is great. Increase our faith. This is too hard to do. And I think, and I'm absolutely convinced that some in this room have been facing someone who repetitively continues to sin. And Jesus continues to say, forgive them. And you're realizing, I don't know if I can do it anymore. I'm tired of it. I'm sick and tired of it. I don't know if I can do it anymore. My wife just said, amen. (laughs) Okay, Jesus is talking about preemptive forgiveness in this verse. Choosing already, before an offense comes, because it's impossible that an offense won't come, choosing already to forgive. We do preemptive attacks as nations upon other nations. And Jesus is saying this is preemptive forgiveness. Already decided. And then the disciples are saying they're right when they, say they, when they look to the Lord for the ability to forgive. But they're wrong in what they're trying to get from the Lord. They say, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus is going to show us that it's not about a measurement of faith. Forgiveness isn't about faith. It's about duty. It's just your duty to do it. Your duty is to do to others what God does for you every single day. And it's not a matter of faith. Let's look at verse 6. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So Jesus is saying the smallest seed known to them at this time, you know, in their environment, in their area, if you even have this much, tiny much, of faith, you could defy physical law. And in saying that, he's saying this is not a matter of faith. It's not. It's a matter of duty. Either that, you guys, or Christ is trying to bring the measurement of faith in, and he wants you and I to discuss today, how do we divide a mustard seed of faith, and at what point do you have enough to forgive? (laughs) Like, is it a tenth of a mustard seed of faith? If a whole seed can move plants and defy physical law, well, then surely a tenth of a mustard seed can... No, that's not it. That's just chaos, right? If we start dividing a mustard seed. He's saying 
that, and I believe firmly, speaking hyperbole here, that it's not about faith. It's about duty. And it's really simple. And he's faithful to tell us that, that it's about duty. The idea that we continue to forgive those, those brothers and sisters who continue to repent. So then Christ switches things. Now it's related, but it seems to be a completely different subject. Like Jesus all of a sudden just went on a different line of thought. But it is very much related to what we're talking about in, in the fact that we're talking about duty. Verse 7, Jesus gives a secular analogy to teach us a spiritual truth. So I'm going to read verses 7 through 10, and then we'll, go, we'll sit on each verse for a few minutes. Verse 7, And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my suffer, supper, and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things which were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Strong words. Powerful words. And a completely different expectation than the world. Verse 7, let's go back to it. Which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once, sit down to eat? Jesus is talking to a culture that we, at this point in time, can't relate to. So this servant, I hope you, uh, let's consider this servant. Do you feel sorry for this servant? They've been plowing, which they didn't have John Deere back in that day. They're working hard all day long. They've been tending sheep and sheep kick, they bite, they run away, there's wolves on top of that, <laughs> and danger. They come in after a long day, and then they're told, get back to work. And you and I can read that in our society, in the way we've been brought up, we can say, that's not really a fair way to treat a servant. You might even think, that's kind of how I'm treated, and I don't feel good about that. There's never an end to the work my boss expects me to do. I put in way more than eight hours. And this, this master seems a lot like my master. And I don't like that. And it's not fair. That's not how the disciples are interpreting this. There's no way. And in fact, today, if you take this scripture to most of the world, they would not interpret this that way. What, the way they would interpret it is, this servant has a job. That's awesome. And they're allowed to serve their master, be in their master's home. That's an honor. And when they're done with all their work, they actually get to eat. <laughs> that's, that's sustenance for life. In fact, it sounds like this servant has security and a full belly at the end of the day. And that's a blessing. That's the difference between them back then and today. My wife, my family, and I, we lived in West Africa, Sierra Leone, West Africa, and we, we call it first place for worst place. It's the, it's the worst place to be born. L less, least likelihood of surviving birth than any other place on the planet. 
the lowest life expectancy on the planet. Least chance of getting a job anywhere in the world except for warring nations, currently warring nations like Yemen and South Sudan. And so if you take this scripture to them, that's how they see it. This dude's got a job. He works all day, and then at the end, he gets to serve his master. That's pretty cool. And, and it's an honor. And then finally, he gets to eat. That's how they, they would interpret this. So then Jesus says, but will he, yeah, so, okay, yeah, but will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk? Afterward, you will eat and drink. And then in verse 9, this is rough, guys. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. This dude doesn't even get a thank you. I mean, it's not easy to serve anybody for very long if they're not showing appreciation. It's not. That's what a thank you is, right? It's stopping someone, acknowledging something they did, and saying, I appreciate what you did for me. And Jesus is saying, this servant doesn't expect a thank you. And he's telling us, go and serve. Work hard all day. I'm going to sum this up. Work hard all day, then come home and continue to serve, and once everyone's satisfied, you can eat and drink, and then after that, don't expect a thank you. Amen. Let's go. Okay. That's crazy talk, because today we wouldn't do it. Today we thank everyone for everything they ever did. I think I've even thanked a stoplight for turning green eventually. Thank you, and just go, you know. We're very uh, keen on the words thank you, and it's good. And it's good to show appreciation. It's necessary to show appreciation. But it's not good to expect it. And Jesus is talking about entitlement here. I, I need to be recognized. I need to be told, you're doing a good job. I need, and I love encouragement. I need to hear thank you, or I'm not going to keep doing this anymore. This has just been a thankless relationship. Unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. Sometimes you hear about someone famous, famous Christian who decides they're going to they're gonna leave their faith. And it's frustrating. We even have Judas in the Bible who walked with the Lord, saw all these incredible miracles, tons of incredibly powerful miracles, who walked away from the Lord. In fact, turned on the Lord. And um, do you know that when Judas turned on the Lord, it's, it's a crazy section of Scripture, but it was right after a woman anointed the Lord's feet and wept, wiped his feet with her tears. She was so happy to finally serve her Savior who had delivered her from demons, right? She wept and she anointed him with this expensive alabaster oil. And then Judas and the disciples, they all said, hey, wow, what a waste of use of expensive oil. And Jesus responded, Hey, what this woman has done for me will be told to every generation wherever this gospel goes. She's, she's permanently going to be exalted for what she did. And you and I are talking about it today as proof, right? It says in the Bible, immediately after Jesus said that, Judas resolved in his heart to betray him. Judas was never exalted. Jesus never looked at Judas and said, 
the world for all generations is going to talk good things about you. He never looked at John and said that, never looked at Peter and said, he, never, he didn't look at any of the disciples and say, you've done such a good thing, thank you. The world's going to just be all about you guys forever. But for this woman, he, he did. What she, the sacrifice she's made is going to be talked about forever. And it's in the Bible, which makes it forever, 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 eternal. That's pretty cool. But Judas was expecting that to be for him. And he, after following the Lord all those years, he didn't get what he wanted, and he turned on Jesus. And G- Jesus wants to protect you and I from that same attitude. This, I, I've been a good dad. I have paid the bills. Um, I, I do my best not to sin. I study my Bible every day. So I'm going to get from the Lord something awesome. And, and Jesus is saying, nope, that's not it. <laughs> right? That's not the answer. That's the way of Judas. So Jesus is preparing you and I for unmet expectations. Unhealthy expectations and entitlement. Instead, what he wants us to walk in is integrity. That's a much better thing than entitlement. Entitlement robs integrity every time. Let's keep reading. I'm going to pick up at verse 8 again. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you... When you have done all those things which are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Amen. That's powerful. Because he's saying, when you have done all that was commanded. So let's go back. When you have confronted the sin of your brother or sister in Christ, even though it's hard, and you've fully done that, And then when you've worked hard all day and you've come home and you've continued to work hard for your wife and for your kids, even after that, don't expect, and you've never heard a thank you, even after that, Jesus is saying, be humble. Be humble. Walk in integrity. Integrity is not wanting credit for the things that I want, for doing the things that I'm supposed to do. And Jesus says, say this, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done what was our duty to do. So once we've lived up to our full expectation in this whole life, we've only met our, what's expected of us. We've only met our duty. It doesn't matter on what level we're talking about. We've only met our duty. At best, we've, in this life, can only accomplish what we're supposed to accomplish. That's our highest. That's, that's the best we can do. That's pretty powerful. And Jesus is saying this because he wants us to walk in integrity. Like a father who pays their bills, it's not dignifying if I, if I brag that I pay my bills. You guys would all be like, you're supposed to pay your bills, dude. Right? Like, or a mom who loves her children. Oh, I just love them sacrificially. 
and I, and I give, and I give, and I give, and I'm awesome. No, that's not dignifying, is it? A mother's supposed to love her children. That's the way God designed it. You're supposed to do it. It's just trying this, this idea that um, I deserve something special for doing what I'm supposed to do is entitlement. That's all it is. Integrity says, yeah, I did what I'm supposed to do. Get over it. And I'll do it again tomorrow, and I'm going to move on with my life. And amen. Whoop-de-doo. When um, uh, uh, I taught this on Wednesday at Rocky Mountain, and Wednesday was the 18-year uh, anniversary of 9-11. And I remember when we were looking at the videos of 9-11 for, for weeks, right? We watched the, the aftermath, the videos, Remember George Bush being there at Ground Zero. I mean, we can all picture it. Those of us old enough to will never forget that, right? And I remember watching a video of a, a hero, absolute hero, a fireman who's in one of the burning towers. Hordes of people are running out, and he's running in. And I remember thinking, because now I knew that the tower falls at this point, it's the last thing this dude ever did. And he had this huge oxygen tank on, and he ran up flights, 80 flights of stairs, just hoping, can I save one person, find one person and rescue them? And then the tower fell, and that guy died. Hundreds of firefighters gave their lives on 9-11, amen? And they're heroes to you and I. But if you ask any, any of them, they would say, I did my duty. That's it. It's like a police officer, if they brag about saving someone's life, it is so undignified. It's, it's just not right. We don't see it because that's how wrong it is. We, we don't even see that. We can look at the world and say, wow, it's all falling apart. I think it's totally apart when the police start bragging that they've saved people's lives. At that point, I don't know, Canada's going to look really good. I don't know. But... This is what Jesus is confronting. It's, it's the idea that a husband who works hard all day and comes home is entitled to stop working, to check out. I, need, I just need to escape. I'm that guy. I am, like, that's me. I just described myself. The, the, the student who gets straight A's, who comes home and says, Mom and Dad... Do we get ice cream? You're supposed to get straight A's, son, right? In fact, I could say to my son, hey, I'm going to show you dignity and respect and not get you ice cream for doing what you're supposed to do. But that's hard to do because I'm blessed and I love my son, and I'm like, yeah, you did a good job, so I get him ice cream. It's easy, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's hard. But we don't want to establish in our society what the world does is they celebrate people who do what they're supposed to do. And it's undignifying. Um, are you guys familiar with Barry Sanders? Don't check out. If you hate football, please don't check out right now. Barry, Barry Sanders, uh, best running back of all time, according to Emmett Smith, who the rest of the world thinks is the best running back of all time. And he would just do amazing things 
People who didn't even like football would catch Barry Sanders' highlights because he was so amazing at running the football. And every time he scored a touchdown, he would go to the referee, throw the ball at him, and then run to the sideline and sit on the bench. And then people were like, Barry, how come you don't do an end zone dance like the other football players? How come you don't pose for the cameras? You don't jump into the stands and celebrate with the fans and get that pat on the back and that hug. I guarantee you Barry's adrenaline is going, and he could do it. He was one of the most loved players, most respected players of all time. But he wouldn't. He would throw the football and then run to the bench and sit down. And he was asked about that, and his response was, it's my job to score touchdowns. That's it. And so why, why should I be celebrated for doing my job? And so I want to ask you guys. Worship team, you're welcome to come up if you'd like. I don't know. Am I early? I don't know. I might be. Um, I want to ask you guys. Are you looking for credit for doing what you're supposed to do? I, 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 my wife and I were with the Navigators, and we love to pour into the college age uh, youth and the young adults. And um, they get married. We go to a lot of weddings. They get married, and then within a year, there's problems. And it's usually related to entitlement. At some point, and it's usually the men, I'm not going to lie. And they're usually, and it usually comes down to video games. No joke. <laughs> this is no joke. Our men's ministry counseling team counsels all kinds of young men on marriage and video games. It's a big deal. And um, our advice to them, we go to Luke 17, and we say, how about you try this? Why don't you work hard all day and then come home and work hard? And then once your wife is eaten and drank and is satisfied, then you can relax. Try that. Try that for 30 days and see how that goes. And they don't like that. But it's an answer, isn't it? And it's God's answer. It is scripture. And I want to ask you guys to, to seek the Lord. Lord, where have I been entitled? Where have I been mad at my spouse because I'm not getting a thank you anymore? Where have I stopped serving my employer because he's asking more out of me than I think I need to give him. Where have I stopped giving him that? And I want to close with the hope and the joy. God's real purpose in your work. God's real purpose in your marriage. I closed my Bible. That was a weird one. Let's go to it in Luke 16. Jesus just got done talking about this. Luke 16, verses 10 through 12. Jesus says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give to you what is your own? And we need to see that our job, whether we work the the most meaningless and empty job, we wonder, why am I doing this? There's, there's nothing spiritual going on. There seems to be no value outside of making a few dollars. And life has caught up to you, and you see the vanity of living for money. And now you're like, I want to do something more meaningful with my life. And God is saying, that meaningless job 
every day that you go to, if you're faithful in that, it's an opportunity for true riches. That worst-case scenario employer or that spouse who's ungrateful and never says thank you is an opportunity for the true riches. And that's how God views your job. He could give you a million different ways to provide for your needs. Manna from heaven is one example, right? But he wants you working for it and then doing that faithfully so that he can entrust to you the true riches, the spiritual true riches, the eternal true riches, the things of God, the the moves of God, the things God does. I got into ministry in 2008. Um, Two weeks prior to getting my, my first job in ministry, I surrendered and I repented of having an entitled attitude. And I said, God, I am so sorry. I have I have hated my job for 14 years. And here I am. You've used it to provide every meal, to pay for the housing, to pay for the cars. And you've given me things that actually matter, like a wife and kids. (laughs) And I've been so mad at the Lord for not allowing me to be in ministry because I felt a call, you know, 14 years prior to that. Two weeks later, the Lord gave me a job in ministry. Because I finally accepted that he doesn't owe it to me. I finally accepted that I am absolutely blessed just to have a job that pays my bills. It blew my mind how easy it was for him to put me in ministry. (laughs) But how hard it was for me to finally catch on to how blessed I was. And so Jesus, literally guys, in those two weeks, I was the most faithful, loyal, happy employee you could have ever imagined. And when I told my boss that I got a job in ministry and I'm moving on, he was so disappointed. And I was actually sad. God was finally making spiritual headway with my colleagues because I was finally faithful. And I regret it. Oh, man. So anyway, 14 years of why didn't I see it that way? Guys, your job is an opportunity to reach the world for Christ. It's an opportunity for the true riches, the spiritual riches that only can come from God, only from Him. And so if somewhere in your heart you're hiding that blessing that you should be giving to your employer, go back to work and give them a thousand percent. I know it's not possible, mathematicians. Give them a hundred percent. And do it faithfully. Don't expect a thank you. Give beyond what they're asking. And then when, when anything comes your way, say, I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing my duty. And allow the Lord to entrust to you the true riches. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, just thank you for uh, time in your word and how you are so faithful in our lives. And God, I know that uh, you, in your word you command us to forgive the repentant brother or sister. But I know that sometimes that's such a hard struggle. Even your disciples, even when they stood in your very presence, st- struggled with that thought. So God, in your grace and your mercy, could you show us where we have not forgiven? Could you give us courage to confront sin that uh, continues to come our way?
Lord, we pray for the right time to do it. Would you prepare the heart of those who need to be confronted to receive it, just like you prepare our heart to receive your rebuke in our spirit. And, and God, so that you can redeem relationships and restore relationships and cause, our, cause uh, all that the enemy wanted for evil to be worked out for good and to your glory. Father, in our, in our jobs, we praise you right now for the jobs that we have and, Lord, the employment that we have. And for those who don't have a job and, and, and need to find one, God, we pray that you would, with all your grace and mercy, open up a job and give, give, us, give them an opportunity to serve you faithfully, not expecting a thank you. And, Lord, at the end of life, no matter what we do, like those firemen who gave their lives uh, on 9-11, we stand before you, and all we would ever be able to say is, we've done what was our duty to do. And so, God, please forgive our pride. Please forgive my pride. God, please forgive us for um, wanting to take credit for the things that are just our simple duty. Lord, would you reveal to our hearts where we feel entitled to things that, God, you're not offering? Lord, would you forgive us for being upset with you and holding you prisoner to an expectation that's unfair to expect? And God, set our hearts straight so that we could be focused on the eternal and lasting treasure of serving you. Father, I just pray for this church that you would continue to flourish it and grow it and continue to pour your spirit out in, in Canyon City. I just pray, Lord, that you would use uh, Livingstone Calvary Chapel as a powerful uh, testimony to your goodness throughout this city. Lord, that the joy and gladness in the hearts of everyone who comes here would be known throughout the city. Lord, that unity in this church would be known throughout this city and and, Lord, that you would do a wonderful thing and expand your kingdom. And, Lord, that you would tr- entrust to each person here the true riches in serving you. We love you, Father. We thank you. Pray for your blessing through this week, your joy and gladness. And, God, cause us to see with joy the beautiful things that you've set apart for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. And I, I would ask that if you need prayer, um, please come forward for prayer. We'd love to... Uh, lift you up in any way we can.